Welcome to the Simple Money Solutions Podcast, where we focus on your money from a Canadian perspective. This podcast is produced weekly and released every Monday. Show notes for every episode can be found at livelifesimple.ca. Now let's get on with the show. Today on the show, we're talking about how Canadian seniors as a general population are becoming more comfortable with debt. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Courtney, and joining with me today is my co-host, Trevor. As mentioned in the introduction, today we're talking about Canadian seniors' comfortability with debt. Also, if we have time, Trevor is going to also provide details of an analysis he did for a friend who is contemplating the purchase of a travel house trailer. So... In an article by Gary Marr titled Canadian Seniors Racking Up Debt to Fund Bigger Homes, a Glitzy Lifestyle, in the National Post Personal Finance section, Marr cited a survey that was done in July 2015 that found that 11.3 million Canadians aged 55 or older have some sort of debt, with 1.87 million Canadians carrying a mortgage. Trevor, did this number surprise or alarm you at all? It's, it's mind-boggling. I had no idea... You know, with younger people, you can often identify people living with debt because they tend to have things that take a long time to acquire, like a, a big house or a fancy car. These things take a long time to, you know, save up the money to uh, to acquire these things. But when you see seniors with these things, you might think it's from years and years of hard work. So it is alarming because when I see a, a senior driving around a Cadillac, I assume they've you know, save the money and worked hard all their life to, and they deserve it. But uh, to find, and when they, they're living in these extravagant McMansions, I assume these people put in the years, put in the time and save their money. And they, they, they've, they've earned the right to live like that, that that lifestyle was earned. So this, this is a shocking, shocking number. So a senior is living with this debt and acquiring these possessions that they can't afford, where do you think that motivation comes from for those individuals? Well, it could be that we're talking about the baby boomers. I, the article's from the Financial Post, and if you think of the time frame, the, the cross-section of the population they're talking about is the baby boomers. And I look back at their sort of um, coming-of-age years. Credit was hard to come by. They, it wasn't as freely available as it is today, so I don't know if it's easy credit, which they're you know, wasn't something they had access to in their young years. So now they're taking advantage in their in their older years. Or is it they've always had these uh, great paying jobs that generation always did, and and they they got a an appetite for a certain lifestyle. And if they didn't prepare for retirement, they're not prepared to give up that lifestyle. I I don't know. I I don't want to condemn uh, these seniors. That's it's it it could be just a the the society they're exposed to, which is is causing them to. Um, continue to want to live an extravagant lifestyle that maybe they can't afford. So you'd say that's why that the need for that lifestyle is there, like that they continue to live that lifestyle because they've lived it previously. Yeah, yeah. It's just once you get a once you get the taste of champagne, it's hard to acquire a taste for beer. <laughs> that's that is true. Uh, so you didn't mention the lavish lifestyle. Do you think that's unique for baby boomer generation or is every generation guilty of living a lifestyle that's beyond their means? Well, I think it's it's a trend that if you go back to what's quoted as the greatest generation ever, which is the the parents of the baby boomers, the, the World War II veteran generation, um, those people were synonymous of living a, you know, working hard, earning everything they had, providing for their families, living a very frugal life. That was how they grew up. I think ever since then, there's been a trend to uh, live a more luxurious lifestyle every generation after that. I'm guilty of it too. So it's, yeah, I'm, I'm not exempt. 
And speaking of a luxurious lifestyle, the article stated that seniors are aspiring to have new lifestyles that they don't have the money to afford. So going back to that, the lifestyle they were living previously, this generation, is something happening, do you think, when they do hit retirement? Are they are they modifying their lifestyle t- into something different? See, I think they're not stopping. So they, like I say, they had great paying jobs and, and they they haven't hit the pause or the slowdown button in retirement. They, they've, been, they've been living a lifestyle that's consuming $60,000 a year and their retirement income is $40,000 a year. Well, they haven't stopped spending $60,000 a year. But isn't there is there not a way that this generation and any generation can save well, that's, the that's money? The, the difference the difference is either savings or credit to make up that difference. So if you've been living a sixty thousand dollar a year lifestyle and you have a forty thousand dollar a year retirement income and not making and not saving and you know, so the if you want to continue with that life that that twenty thousand dollar gap is going to be made up through your retirement savings or credit. So this generation just has to realize that no. They can't continue living how they've been living, and they do have to make some sacrifices. If, in fact, they didn't prepare for retirement, the only solution is sacrifice. So debt, but debt is the consequence of not properly saving or preparing for retirement, correct? Debt is a consequence of not adjusting your lifestyle. So it's more about adjustment at the end of the day than it really is saving. At the end of the day, the math has to work. You have to spend less money than, than, than you earn or have coming in. True, very true. Um, so moving along, um, the article said that seniors are not downsizing, but rather upgrading, which is a term that was used as right-sizing. First off, can you tell us what right, right-sizing is and how yeah. does this concept differ from downsizing? So right si- so downsizing is, is you're, you're living in a four-bedroom, 2,000-square-foot house. All your kids have moved away. Obviously, you have t- more house than you need. So downsizing would be moving to a smaller house. Now, the downside of downsizing is a lot of times when you move to a smaller house, you're moving into less desirable neighborhoods. So downsizing becomes, you know, you, you've spent your whole life living in a, I'll call it an upscale neighborhood, and, and now downsize and, and get some capital out of your, your uh, real estate investment that you can use to spend in your retirement. To downsize means to move into smaller homes, which are typically located in less desirable neighborhoods. That that's problematic, and and so what they're choosing to do is what's called right sizing, meaning reducing the size of their home. So they're reducing the amount of upkeep it would take, like the size of their lawn and, and the square the, footage, the square footage overall, a smaller house, but it's it's fancier. It's got marble floors, it's got granite countertops, it's got uh, high end kitchens, high end bathrooms. So it's it's fancier. So at the end of the day, it costs just as much. So they're still in an upscale neighborhood. They haven't managed to extract any capital capital from the real estate investment to live off of. But the problem with that is at some point, if you ever want to use some of your, a lot of people, when they say, you know, how much have you got saved for retirement, they'll often include the value of their home in that number. So if you're in fact doing that, that means you must have the intentions of pulling money out of your real estate investment to live off of. That's a really good point, Trevor. And I think it's a good idea. And so if you right size, as I described it, you know, the smaller home, but fancier, you haven't pulled any capital out. So I, I don't know if right sizing is not the answer for people who are try, trying to utilize some of their real estate investment to live off of. Okay. So let's break that in a little bit more. So right size, an example of right sizing, would that be that senior, senior couple who go to buy a condo? Is that, is that an example of right size? That's a good example. Yeah. yeah. So you, you move from a, you know, your 2000 square foot home into a condo, but an upscale condo. So you don't have to cut grass. You don't have to worry about exterior maintenance. Um, but that comes with a cost. Those, 
con there's there's usually maintenance and monthly maintenance fees that you pay to your condo board. So in the more upscale the condo, the higher those fees are. I don't know about where you're from, Trevor, but where I'm from, condos are going up left, right, and center, and they are they seem like a hot commodity. They seem like where you should want to live as a senior. Is this is this realistic or, or is this some kind of marketing ploy to get people to move into high scale condos? Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if I trust the condo market from a long term investment standpoint. I think you're gonna find right now it's all the rage because the boomers, the baby boomers, that huge group of population, they are desiring condos and therefore the price of condos is just shooting through the roof. I think you're gonna find when the baby boomers are gone, condos are gonna be um, uh, the value is gonna potentially drop. So, so they make me nervous as, as an investment. So really, the the builders of condos are just capitalizing on the seniors' uh, willingness to pay for for that. Just supply and demand. They're, they're, that, that's what that's what seniors want. They want they want fancy. They want smaller. The market's more than happy to provide it. The more the more seniors down, the more they downsize. It's just going to keep driving the price of those condos up and up and up. But at some point, when all those boomers are gone, and the boomer the baby boomers is just to define that is a is the was a, a baby boom in the 1940s where these there's this huge massive cross-section of the of society that has been altering economic balance in our society ever since they came to be <laughs> you know there was a whenever that happens if you if you look back when the baby boomers were buying their first homes interest rates were just through the roof because so many people wanted to buy houses so many people were borrowing money and now the boomers are retired and all their investment dollars are in the investment market and interest rates are at rock bottom prices, record lows. So this that's how much they impact the, the financial, their financial impact on our society. That, that's the kind of impact, they, the, the footprint they leave as they move along. So just veering off path here for a few minutes to touch on baby boomers again, just do you hypothesize that when the baby boomers are no longer, are, is our market going to be all out of whack and need a lot of adjustment to cater to the the decrease of people? Yeah, there's going to be a surplus of a lot of things. There's going to be a surplus of um, healthcare services. That's for sure. There's going to be a surplus of real estate. Unless something changes in the Canadian immigration laws where we have a huge influx of, of immigrants, um, there's going to be a surplus of real estate. As a result, there will be a, a market correction in the price of real estate. Which will come down and be more beneficial for the rest? Well, it's going to help the first-time homebuyers, but it's going to hurt the people that currently own real estate. They're going to they're going to be sitting there thinking they have you know four hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of uh, equity in a home, and then as the market corrects over say a period of ten years, they're going to see some erosion in that equity. When do you think that is all? How, like how many years for do you think that will all take place? Well, I think you're going to see. Oh, just to back that up, you're also going to see a surplus in in um, uh, retirement home spaces and nursing home spaces. You're probably talking twenty, twenty five years before it all. You know, the whole baby boomer effect is completely removed. And after the baby boomer effect is fully removed, will so you said ten years? After that, ten years, will the market reach a new normal? Then it's probably going to. More of a, this is just a theory, but more of a bottoming out effect. And then, then it'll start to come back. The only thing that could alter this is if, say, the millennial generation, if they desired condos over traditional homes, then then that theory doesn't wash, right? So if the millennials view condos as, as a place more desirable than a, than a traditional house, then the condo market stays strong. 
And you never know because the the more traditional lifestyles of past generations could totally take a turn. Well, if you think about the, the my generation, uh, which I'll, I'll call it Gen X, um, they've kind of fallen into the, the the suburb lifestyle where they live out just outside of the city and they they tolerate you know one and a half two hour commutes each way to work. Millennials maybe they're not going to sign up for that. They're going to want to be. Uh, in condos, which are typically located downtown, they'll be able to walk to work. You know, that kind of mentality from a millennial generation drive condo prices even higher. And you are seeing the trend now of um, people having children and getting married later in life. So one bedroom condo, bachelor pad right down in the city, right in prime real estate area might be something that takes off. And these are the generations who are younger may just simply fill in where the baby boomers are leaving. I'm seeing a lot of condos, two bedrooms. You know, when I grew up, every uh, single family dwelling was a three bedroom because it assumed everybody's going to have two kids, right? I see a lot of two bedroom condos, two bedroom houses now. And I think that maybe is to the geared to the boomers, but that may alter uh, the surplus of two bedroom homes could alter the family planning of millennials. That's a really good point. And also just the general trend of... And if you think about, just just want to touch on that, think of the lasting impact those boomers are going to leave on on society if, if in fact their desire for two-bedroom dwellings makes millennials think, well, we've only got one extra, you know, we've only got two bedrooms, so we'll just have the one child. You know, they will have altered the population four generations into the future. And with already the trend being to have a smaller family than it was a few generations ago, that just might be the extra push the millennials need to have a smaller family. Yeah, yeah, it just, it's convenience, right? It's what's available. Um, So, okay, going right back to our article, um, you're talking about right-sizing, but how do you downsize properly so that seniors are, the the baby boom generation aren't kind of giving up the the nice lifestyle? Like, how can they avoid living in an area they may not feel comfortable living in? What's the right way to downsize and save, or if that's the goal of it? Well, if if you need to pull, like, like I said earlier, if you need to pull capital out of your real estate investment to live off of, then you're going to have to live with living in a less desirable neighborhood in a smaller home. And if you have planned for retirement and you have sufficient savings to live off of, then, then I think right sizing is the right. I, I plan to right size just for the record. That's the route I'm going to go. I want to right size. I, I've lived in a sort of a modest home and I, I want to live fancy, but I'm planning for that. So right sizing isn't bad. You just have to, you just have to account for it in your retirement what, what plans. The, the, yeah. The problem is people who there's people that they're right sizing that really need to downsize a senior with a mortgage you know, someone who's 65, they still have a mortgage and they're still living in that 2000 square foot home that their family grew up in, or they raised their family in those people, they need to downsize, you know, get rid of that mortgage. But the problem is a lot of those people are right sizing. And I think, I think once developers start seeing the trends and start seeing these statistics, I almost think in the future that condos will come down in price. There will be less luxurious condos being built that will cater to an actual downsizing concept for these uh, baby boomers because, again, that market is so big. But I also I just think right now that the word condo, it just has a luxurious connotation to it. It does. It does. You know, when I when I was um, starting out, I bought a, a condominium property and it actually had a negative connotation to it. You know, it was sort of, you know, it was unfortunate that I had to live in a condo. Because everyone wants to live in a house, right? Exactly. Now it's like I live in a condo. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> so I, I definitely think that 
because that market is so big, I think um, downsizing and not suffering quality that much and what everyone the, the needs of well, these. Well, it really depends how much you have to downsize. I mean, if if you um if you've only if you're 65 years old and you've got a $200,000 mortgage, you're going to have to downsize pretty hard. Yeah. You know, like it's oh, not yeah. going to be a soft landing. If you want to, if you want to sustain retirement, I, it just doesn't make sense to, if I'm 65, I want to travel. I want to enjoy life. I don't want to be making mortgage payments. Oh no. Yeah. That that can't be, I, I'm certain that was nobody's plan going in to retirement. You know, that, that, that's just a consequence of poor planning, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, if you, if you're just willing to give up a bit of lifestyle in, in terms of of day-to-day lifestyle, the home you live in, you might be able to enjoy more of a travel lifestyle. And you just touched on mortgages. Um, the article states that 75 years of age and older, individuals that are 75 years of age and older, have an average mortgage of $133,944. Why isn't paying off mortgages a bigger priority or concern as age group? And why are, these, why are the baby boomers heading into retirement with such a large mortgage on their hands. Well, one of it's the the carrying costs of, of, a, of a mortgage, record low interest rates. Like we, I mentioned earlier, you know, three and a half percent mortgage interest rate, one hundred thirty-three thousand dollars. That's not a huge expense, but it, it's still it, it's it's something you got to deal with every month. You got to make that payment. That one hundred thirty-three thousand dollars to me, that just screams downsize. You know, if if if, if I got a if I'm seventy five and I have a hundred three thirty three thousand dollar mortgage, the easy answer is just moving to a smaller house. But and in a way, or at seventy five, you are. I mean, there's more life behind you than ahead of you. Are these individuals maybe just throwing caution to the wind and realizing that it's they're never maybe going to pay off their mortgage? No, I think a lot of it is is maybe pride. You know, I think it's or or their definition of dignity. They they don't want to. They've been living a life they couldn't afford, and they don't want they don't want to admit to the world that. How do you explain moving into a smaller house? You know, or or, or, or a, a less desirable neighborhood, other than that's what I can afford. Definitely, and I mean, these individuals have worked so hard their whole life to have what they have. So admitting that they it's on debt, some of yeah, it. I'm not condemning these people. I, I, I get that if I've spent 35 years in a nice house and maybe lived a, a lavish lifestyle, giving that up, I, that, that, that's not easy. I'm, I'm not saying this is easy by any stretch, but I, I think it's the answer. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Backtracking. This article uh, also mentions reverse mortgages. First off, what are reverse mortgages? So first I want to say I'm not an expert on reverse mortgages, but just in, in its very broad uh, brush, it's it's a way to convert the equity in your home into a stream of income to live off of. There's only two companies in Canada that offer it, so it's it's not exactly common. It's what I would consider a sort of a last ditch effort for somebody who either through unplanned circumstances or whatever aren't prepared for retirement or investments gone bad. You know, it's a way to tap into the equity in your home, but still live in it, which if if you've spent your whole life there, maybe that, that comfort's important. But what actually happens um, to the mortgage on your house then? Well, you don't have to make any payments. So you bas- you get a stream of income uh, based on the value of your home and the equity you have in it. You you get a, a stream of income and interest starts accruing on on the money that you've uh, I'll say borrowed or, or received from the bank and that's that interest that's accruing eats away your equity as well as the money you're getting so the equity sort of disappears in a hurry the people that really end up suffering if you want to call it that is the uh, beneficiaries of your of your assets when you when you pass so the 
beneficiaries in your will obviously won't have the benefit of, of the selling your house and nor should they, right? You worked for it. So it's, I, I'm not condemning it. I, I may actually do it someday myself. Definitely. It, it seems like a strategy that uh, is, is definitely beneficial for, for those who but, are okay with it. But if you think about the, 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 the invention of the reverse mortgage is just another way of the bank's to help you finance a lifestyle you can't afford. At the end of the day, it's 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 an invented tool to continue to feed the banks in, in a way that uh, uh, this is off topic, but leased cars is a fairly new concept over the last twenty years, and it was just a tool the car companies used to sell more expensive cars to people that couldn't afford them. So this is just uh, another tool the banks are using. So you just touched on debt financed lifestyle that concept and. Uh, Gary Marr discusses that a lot in this article, Debt Finance Lifestyles. Is this type of lifestyle okay used responsibly or is it just something that you should avoid altogether? You know, the the the, the borrower is a slave to the lender is a, is a phrase that I, I, I say in my head all the time. A debt finance lifestyle is something that cannot be sustained. It is not okay. It is, it is, it only ends one way and that's in poverty. Like nothing good comes, nothing good comes from spending more money than you earn. This is just people living beyond their means. So if, if a debt finance lifestyle is obviously not okay, why, why are people so quick so, to live that lifestyle? People often say, you know, I, I don't have enough money for this. I don't have money for that. What they have is they have too much wants and desires given the level of income. So it's really, the problem is the new normal has been defined to people through marketing and advertising. And that new normal is not sustainable on the average person's income. I seen an advertisement from, from a bank and it showed a retired cup on a cruise ship. And I thought it was going to be an investing ad, but it turned out it was a, a way to, to use your, called the home equity line of credit. And that's what they were advertising. But in the picture, it was a retired couple on a cruise ship. So the suggestion there is you can borrow money against your home to take a cruise. You know, so that's been defined as the new normal through marketing and with the internet and TV and you just can't get away from that. Those, those ads, it's, it's everywhere. It sounds just like a nasty brainwashing cycle where, where people or people who maybe aren't finance, living a diet finance lifestyle is kind of rare. It, it is rare, but it shouldn't be. It, it should be that that should be the, the, the crazy ones, right? That should be the, you know, a lot of times I see people my age doing things. And as soon as I ask myself, I wonder how they do that. I, I stop myself and say, I, I know how they do it. You know, they borrowed the money to do it. New cars, vacations. I, mean, I literally cash flow everything. I, I credit is my enemy. My next question was, how, so how do you properly finance your lifestyle? And is cash flowing then the answer? Well, it's, it's cash flowing is the answer, but it's setting priorities and saying, you know, I can't do everything. So it's really, I like to sit down and, and every year decide, you know, what's, what do I want to accomplish this year? Cause I've only got so much money and, and I want to make sure I use it wisely. So it's, it's prioritizing and deciding what's important. Everything can't be important. You have to, you have to pick sort of your, your one or two hobbies that interest you. You, you can't have a hobby in everything. So do you say the people that don't, don't really just buy everything that they want or do everything they want. Is that a lack of self-discipline or what, what would you equate that to that when, <sighs> when, when you don't have the money for it, just put it on debt. What kind of thought process is that? So personal finance is in my theory, it's 10% knowledge, 90% behavior. So when somebody goes to buy something on their credit card, they probably know they don't have the money for it. You know, it's, they can do the math, right? It's, 
the math is easy. It's it's the 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 self discipline to say, you know what, I, I can I can wait for this, or I don't need this. So really, there that that consumer just doesn't have, just doesn't have. There's no. They just make exceptions. They make excuses. Is that? It's 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 habit. Like they they just get used to you know having getting what they want when they want it. And um, I'm not saying you have to live a deprived life, but you just have to make choices. You know, you can't have it all. You got to pick what's important. And like you're saying earlier, with um, with 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 the consumers and being okay with the marketing being okay with having consumers go on vacations and use use, use lines of credit as retired, it kind of goes back to the, that where you can be okay with using credit for whatever you want. Yeah. Well, and if you've been doing it your whole life, it's pretty hard to turn that off when you're retired. Oh, you definitely. Know, that, that, that mindset. So it's something that you need to start building that discipline uh, early, even if you can afford, if you, if, if you're living off the average household income in Canada is $87,000. So if you're living on $87,000 a year and your, your retirement income is going to give you $45,000 a year. Well, when you hit, five you can't just flip a switch you've got to start ramping down to that lifestyle you know because it because it'll just feel like a life of of depriving yourself so it's i think you've just got to start slowing it down as you start getting close to retirement and oh definitely um so moving along in the article um it states that people don't care about their debt and that they are perfectly comfortable with how they manage their finances should the average average consumer ever be okay with debt and if they are okay, is there something wrong if a certain individual doesn't get panicked by debt? Or are we all wired a little bit differently? Well, people say, well, there's good debt and bad debt. Well, if there was such thing as good debt, people would be getting in line for it. You know, there's no such thing as good debt. There's necessary debt. There's things like student loans. Obviously, a mortgage, buying a house is not something you save up cash and buy. But things like cars and consumer electronics and, and vacations, those things should be cash flowed, not not. Debt is not a solution there. So people that are okay with debt, are they actually okay with debt, or are they just what are they? What what what's their thought process? Well, I, I go back to this thing. There's 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 two voices in your head. There's there there's the there's the voice that says get up and go to work every day and be responsible and earn a living. And then there's the I call that the adult voice in your head. And then there's the the child voice in your head that says you know. I want this, I want that, I want. And typically, in the average person, it's the adult voice that earns the money, it's the child voice that spends it. And you, you need to get rid of that child voice and, and have your adult voice spend your money. Because you definitely wouldn't let your kids spend your money. Exactly. Um, okay, so moving along, there was there was a study done that says that two-thirds of parents claim that adult children are cutting the retirement savings. Um and that they're taking these these senior citizens are taking out lines of credit against their house to help their children buy their own house since house prices have increased so much. First off, have adult children always been relying on their parents for financial support? Is there something just new with this generation? I think within Canada, this this booming housing crisis, um, everyone's hitting the panic button. So the parents are hitting the panic button saying, you know, if I don't help my kids buy this house now, they'll never own a house. And the, the adult children are saying the same thing. If I don't buy a house soon, I'll never own a house. You know, saving up a down payment for a house has been a rite of passage since the since the beginning of time I, I the helping your children to buy a house at the expense of your retirement is going to create resentment loaning family money never tends to work out you know it changes the relationship so the minute you loan your children money and when you're buying houses we're talking significant money life altering money it it just it never 
it never, it, it quite often doesn't end well. And I guess parents are doing this because they have unconditional love for their own children so that they'd want to do anything to help their children out. But I guess the line has to be drawn. And I just want to, you know, so I just want to take that back. So banks are financial lending institutions that employ people to assess somebody's ability to repay a loan. And they make a, they do they do this every day. So obviously these adult children, they go to a bank, they can't get the money to buy the house. So they go to their parents. So their parents, I guess, assume they know more than the banks in terms of their kids' ability, to, their adult children's ability to repay that loan. If, the, if, if a bank doesn't think they can do it, and the banks are in it to make money, they want to loan money to anybody and everybody who they think is worthy of paying it back. If they're not going to loan that person money, I don't see how a parent thinks they're any smarter. In fact, the parent's judgment is clouded by the, the, the love relationship that they have with that child. So it, it's, it's, it's dangerous on, on all sorts of levels. That's a really good point, Trevor. And it's, it's definitely something that those parents should definitely um, think about, but it's often forgotten about. But going back to why children are able to afford their own house, hasn't the hourly wage increased proportionally to the cost of living as it has with previous generations? Like, Why are these adult children unable to afford their own houses? House prices have been outstripping income in Canada for... I'll say the last five to eight years. But I think proportionally, the generation that's moving into the house buying opportunities right now, these say 25 to 30 year olds, I think they earn less money now, inflation adjusted, than I earned at that age. And I think a lot of it has to do with the impact of the global economy. We're competing against uh, lifestyles that people are living in China. So jo- jobs are paying less. Things are getting outsourced. People are working multiple jobs. So I don't think the people buying houses today have the purchasing power I did at their age. So it's just getting harder to purchase houses. For a multitude of reasons. One is this, when I was buying houses, so back in the late 1980s, there was a housing boom in Ontario. That's where I live. And it bought, it, it, it burst and everything bottomed out in the early 90s. And it took 10 years to recover. I think we're looking at the same thing but on uh, a bigger scale. I think you're going to see um, this can't be sustained. Uh, a 1% increase in interest rates takes a whole bunch of people out of the house buying market. And when you reduce that demand, so those p- potential buyers are out of the market, they can't afford it, that's going to bring prices down. And once prices start to fall, people start to hit the panic button. You know, and they want to unload houses before the price falls too far. And it, it just, it, so I think you're going to see a, a bottom fall out of this market in within the next eight years. Wow. So pretty soon, pretty soon. Um, so moving right along in this article, uh, there's another study cited within it that said that senior debt is a combination of debt with an auto loans, bank loans, line of credit and credit card debt. So if this, if this baby boomer boomer generation was raised in an era when credit cards didn't exist slash were coming to early existence, should the reliance on credit cards and the usage of those credit cards not be minimal? You would think, but maybe uh, this is just a theory. But maybe I know uh, my parents. The first credit card to come out was called ChargeX. It later became Visa. Whenever we were in a store and somebody pulled one of those out, it was like, "Ooh, what is that?" You know. And it New was and only, shiny. It was only for the uh, the very rich and very wealthy people that basically didn't need credit. <laughs> and I think maybe, just maybe, it's it's that sort of uh, you know that that generation views it as a. Uh, prestige symbol. Maybe. I don't know. Just a guess. 
And definitely that makes sense just because it's something that they can now use. Um, so moving along the article as well, um, it, it, it's noted that low interest rates have encouraged seniors to take on more debt and that these debt-ridden individuals only are in trouble if interest rates rise as they'll no longer be able to support their lifestyle. First of all, for all of our less financially inclined listeners, how likely is it that interest rates will actually rise or ultimately how likely is it that these higher interest rates will launch these debt-ridden seniors into major hardship? Well, the likelihood of interest rates going up is so what what drives interest rates in our country here in Canada is the Bank of Canada is tasked with currently the current government has tasked the Bank of Canada with keeping inflation at I don't know the exact number, but we'll say it's 2%. So if inflation which is measured on a basket of goods. If the cost of those basket of goods goes up more than 2%, then the Bank of Canada is supposed to take action to reduce spending and the lever they can pull or the control they have is over interest rates that they charge the banks. So they would in- increase the rate which the chartered banks borrow money. And so as the interest rates go up, less people are going to borrow money. Less people borrow money, they have less money to spend. Less people spend money, there's less demand for goods. Therefore, the price of goods falls because the demand is fall. So the likelihood of interest rates rising anytime soon is unlikely unless the government decides that's how they're going to attack this housing boom crisis. That's a possibility. The seniors' ability to, to manage their debt if interest rates go up, the second part of your question, they're typically on fixed incomes, meaning their incomes don't you know, fix pensions. Some of them are inflation adjusted, some of them aren't. But if interest rates go up, I think a lot of seniors would be in pretty bad shape. So moving on from that, Gary Martin's article also states that retirees have lower debt to income than the general population and much higher wealth and assets than any other group. But isn't comparing the one level of debt against another just a classic is, example of... This is the insanity of it. The new normal is seniors having debt. The, this article saying they're doing better than anybody else. But the concept of a senior having debt is is it should be off the charts from an insanity standpoint. The, this are, this Gary Marr is trying to normalize the concept of seniors having debt, and he's saying they're doing better than the rest of us. But they shouldn't have any debt. That's that's so I, I sort of I disagree with the, that part of the article. But I mean, he's trying to put a positive spin on this. You can't put a cherry on this. Is is this is the trend of normalization of debt with any generation? Is that something you see continuing? It it is it it it's it's almost expected. You know, it's you see these you know no money down. You know, uh, for these furniture stores like Leon's and the Brick, uh, no money, no interest for one year. You see a home equity line of credits being advertised. Adds to consolidate your debts, and then eight-year car loans. It's it's all about borrowing money, living on credit. What's it going to take to change that whole mentality? I don't know that it. I don't know that you can change this. Is what what would change it is interest rates. So I, you know when I when I bought my first house, interest rates were at eleven percent, and uh, I'll say just a car loan was maybe twelve percent, fifteen percent. Those kind of interest rates would definitely alter people's you know credit would look less desirable okay so we reached the end of really picking apart this article by gary marr and uh, i think it's been a really good discussion we do have time left though so trevor if you want to launch into the details of an analysis you did for your friend who was contemplating the purchase of a house trailer so just kind of give us some background on that and what your findings were 
Okay, so a friend of mine, he a guy, a guy I work with, he wanted to buy a, a house trailer. When I talk about house trailer, this is a it, it's a travel house trailer. This was a, a 25 foot trailer to be pulled behind a pickup truck. And so this this person's retiring, so they're and they're, they're contemplating doing this for retirement. So it basically his question: Should I buy it or not? Well, in my mind, if if you want to make a decision, you need at least two options. So his was to buy it or not buy it. And I think, well, that's not a good for a decision. So I decided I need to compare it to the next best alternative. So I tr- the trailers, he was going to use it for vacationing. So I decided the next best alternative for vacation, vacationing was to stay in a hotel. So I was going to compare staying in a, a hotel versus buying a trailer. Because of the, the big purchase, the capital nature of buying a trailer, I need to do, a, do the comparison over a time period for the purpose of the analysis. So I picked 10 years and I based the 10 years on when I looked up 10 year old trailers, they were selling between 500 and a thousand dollars. So I assumed most of its useful life would have been used up in 10 years. So here's some hard numbers that I come up with. So the cost of trailering, as I call it, the trailer he was looking at buying was a 25 foot travel trailer, $25,000. He needed to buy a truck to pull this trailer. We're going to buy a new truck because this analysis is over 10 years. And that was his plan actually to buy a new truck. So round numbers, $50,000. He actually wanted to buy a three quarter ton truck because you want to be sure it would be able to pull the trailer. Now, to be fair, I need to subtract the price of a car somebody might have bought instead of a truck. So I'm using $25,000 for the value of the car. So that's that's pretty basic transportation, but I, I can't base my analysis on people's personal preference for cars. So so far, we got $25,000 for the trailer, uh, $50,000 for the truck, less $25,000 for the car. So we're $50,000 in. Then I looked up and I talked to my friend about camping fees. So when you go to a trailer park, uh, you got to pay so much to camp. And if you got the trailer, you want to get all the hookups. So when I say hookups, it's electricity, water, sewer. How much do you think it costs? Oh, I don't know. For for one night? Yeah, one night. I'm going to I'm gonna say $25. 50 bucks. For one night? Yeah. Wow. And he, he actually knows of some parks where it's 60, but 50 bucks a night. But you're getting electricity, water, and, and a sewer hookup for that. Uh, so if you do that, so if you do that over 10 years, and part of this analysis is this guy's going to camp a lot. So I, he's going to, I've decided in my analysis, he's going to camp 75 nights a year. That's three months, three out of 12 months. So if you're going to spend that much on a trailer and a truck, you you might as well be using it, right? So so camping fees at $50 a night for 75 nights over 10 years, that's $37,500. Wow. Yeah. So also the insurance on the trailer, according to my friend, was $800 a year. Over 10 years, that's $8,000. This person happens to live in, in, in a town uh, so he has to, he can't store his trailer on his property. So winter storage, he found a barn where he could store it over the winter, which is a good idea. That's $200 a year over 10 years. That's $2,000. So total cost of trailering, just those things I mentioned, $97,500 over 10 years. Now you can stay in a hotel. I used $130 a night. Now, if you stayed downtown in a city, it's $200 a night. I stayed in a hotel, nice clean ones for as low as $70 a night. So $130, I figure that's a good average. Over 75 nights for 10 years, that's $97,500. So that's the break-even point, right? So $25,000 trailer, $50,000 truck, camping over 10 years, you can stay in a hotel for the same price. Now, there's some other considerations to consider here that that I haven't built into my analysis, and and I'll go over why. So you're going to burn some extra fuel towing a trailer versus driving a car to a hotel. So I didn't consider that. The reason I didn't is because you can eat a lot cheaper. You can cook your own meals when you're camping. In a hotel, you typically eat at a restaurant more often. It costs more. 
So I'm going to say those two things will offset. Some other considerations are entertainment. If you're camping, you consider on a campfire. If you're hoteling it, well, you're probably going to the theater, out for dinner, or shows or whatever. That's a little more expensive. So that's personal preference. Uh, there's also considerations, the outdoor experience. Uh, it's good and bad. You know, there's a lot of bugs. It can get cool at night. But in a hotel, you might, you know, sometimes there's nothing to do. It, it, that's a personal preference thing to consider. So it doesn't just come down to dollars. There's also... Um, I've had bad experiences at hotels and I've also been camping and seen people have a lot of mechanical problems with their trailers. So those kind of things offset. One big one for me is I've towed trailers. There's a stress in towing a trailer. You're always sort of looking in your mirror. You, you got to sort of be a little more cautious when you're driving. You can't stop as quickly. It's harder to turn corners if you get into tight areas. And one big thing to consider when you're trailering is this thing called I call two-foot-itis. And whenever you're in a trailer park, no matter where you are, there's always a bigger, nicer trailer. If you suffer from two-foot-itis, trailering becomes very, very expensive. At the end of the day, my friend bought the trailer. My analysis would suggest you shouldn't. He ended up doing it because he enjoys the outdoor life. I think that's a pretty good reason, being it's the same. It's, it costs the same to to stay in a hotel, but uh, he decided um, trailering was for him. I may revisit this, you know, he's retired and I may revisit this and, and give you an update on, you know, maybe a few years from now, how his trailering experience is going. But from a financial standpoint, I'm leaning toward hotels. And also you have to take into consideration that you might not stay in a hotel sunny five days out of a year, but you might feel pressure to use your trailer more often to pay that's, for it. That's very true. That's true. And another consideration I didn't mention was depending what kind of vacation you, I'll use the city of Ottawa as an example. Um, I went there to see the apartment buildings and all that stuff in the museums. And the hotel we stayed in was right near those attractions. But if you wanted to camp, you were looking at an hour's drive. So that's another, but that's another consideration. But you're right about the camping. You may end up using your trailer more than you wanted it just out of obligation. And that's, more, maybe more resentful for the fact that you have to use it. Well, Trevor, that sounds like a very thorough analysis that really is beneficial to our listeners who maybe are considering the purchase of a trailer because it is a large expense. So this will definitely give them some to, to think about before they make that purchase. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to check out the show notes at livelifesimple.ca. Please give the show a rating on iTunes as it helps us get noticed and leave your comments as well about this show or this episode on iTunes as well, as well as shows that you'd like to see in the future. Until next week, keep it simple.